Welcome to the Digital Thoughts Podcast. My name is Zan Sayed, and I am a pharmacist turned product manager. I have almost 10 years of clinical experience in oncology, ranging from inpatient all the way to outpatient. My goal with this podcast is to bring people from all sides of the conversation together so that we can learn from each other and build a better healthcare system. In this podcast, we discuss everything digital health from the people to the products. If you do enjoy what you listen to, please consider giving this podcast a five-star rating in Apple Podcasts or Spotify. It really does help a lot. Thank you very much, and let's get into the episode. Today, we have an awesome guest. His name is Bryce Platt. Bryce is a consultant pharmacist specializing in helping PBMs, startups, and policy. In this episode, we talk about how do PBMs work? What is a transparent PBM? What is the cost plus model and why it's beneficial to patients? And how he became financially independent. Hey, Bryce, how are you doing? Hey, Zane, thanks for having me on. Yeah, Bryce, um, for those who don't know who you are, do you mind giving us a little background about yourself? Sure. I'm a consultant pharmacist. I mainly work with people around PBMs and startups right now. I'm looking to get a little more experience on the government side. Yeah, very nice. Um, So Bryce is in the world where a lot of people get really confused in, and that's one of the reasons why I'm bringing him on, because he understands the PBM world, and then we can kind of jump into all the other couple other thing a couple of other topics but um when we first met you we you, we were kind of talking about how you were working with companies and trying to create a transparent more transparent PBM do you mind kind of going into that the thought process behind why that's important sure so something that a lot of people in healthcare recently have heard about are how terrible the PBMs are and a lot of how they aren't transparent and a lot of that is how they make their money. So PBMs, the majority of their money comes from spread pricing, from rebates, and from DIR fees that they call back after they've already uh, had the patient pay for the medication and, and given out the claim. So I wanted to get to a, a point working with the company that they didn't have to rely on spread pricing, rebates, DIR fees to have a strong business model. And so uh, recently I've been, the last well, year and a half, I've been consulting with a company that is a startup, that is a handful of people that work there, and they are a transparent PBM, meaning you can see exactly what you're going to be reimbursed as the pharmacy, and the payer, the employer, knows exactly how much drugs are going to cost whenever their patient, their employee comes to the pharmacy. Is that not the way it is right now? That is not the way it is. <laughs> so this is so, this is the stuff that's yeah. really surprising to everyone. Sure, sure. So the normal way it goes right now, at a pharmacy, you you are the patient, you walk in, the pharmacy has no idea how much they're going to make or how much their drug is going to, to be reimbursed um, from the payer. So the only way they find out is the patient gives their insurance card, the pharmacy runs the insurance, runs an actual claim for that prescription, and then they get back on a little sticker that they put on the bottle that says, oh, you lost $10 on this drug, or you made $200 on this drug. Uh, the problem is around 70% of the time, these pharmacies are losing money on the drug. 70% of the time. That's not a very good business model, if you can imagine that, uh, where 70% of the time you're losing money on your product. The way they can still do that is the top one to 2% of claims, they make a ton of money on those claims. So for normal retail chain pharmacies, that's great because they can have these large PBMs 
focus on steering uh, their patients that have those high reimbursement medications to their pharmacies. And for the independent pharmacies, they don't have that ability. And so that's why we've seen a lot of the crunch on independent pharmacies and how they've been bought up and consolidated. That's, that's crazy. I mean, I'm, I'm in the pharmacy world and I didn't really know any of that. And that's why, and it's one of the main reasons why I wanted to bring you on, because this is something that I don't think a lot of people, people just think that, oh, a pharmacy, they just, because we, we have experience with like Walgreens and the CVSs and so on and so forth. Right. And everyone just thinks, oh, these guys are just making money hand over fist. But what you're saying is if you're not attached to a PBM and then you're not a preferred pharmacy for that PBM, you're kind of SOL. Absolutely. One, you don't have as much negotiation weight with the, the payers when you're, when you're doing the contracting, negotiating, uh, because one, the company's not also the owner that you're working under. Um, but then you also have a lot more pharmacies that give you a lot more uh, clout and, and uh, like I said, negotiation weight to negotiate for better rates um, because you have a lot more patients coming to you. So the individual pharmacies, they have to group up under PSAOs, uh, which is just a group purchasing organization, um, and they can negotiate for better rates that way. But it's still, you know, individual pharmacies have to have to fight. And the last 20, 25 years has been declining margins for these independent pharmacies. And that's why it's become less and less. You've seen independent pharmacies and more and more. It's like, OK, the only pharmacy even close is a CVS or a Walgreens. And that's your only option. Yeah. And it's been it's been really sad to see independent pharmacies go um, I've talked to quite a bit of independent owners and it's, um, you know, it's their whole life, right? They're, that they're having to give up. But so with the transparent PBM, so what is the outside of like, how does the transparent PBM make money then? Sure, sure. Uh, so once I'll start, I'll start out by saying that the name of the company is MakeORX. Yeah. And there, there are similar, uh, kind of similar other PBMs that have, that have gone this space. Um, uh, the big one that I'm aware of is uh, Capital RX. And the main way that... Uh, they we make money on claims as just a a fee uh, a, a small fee per claim. It's not based on uh, like increased volume. It's not based on uh, rebates getting back, and we get to keep some fees from having the rebates. Um, like I said, it's not a spread on the product, and uh, we don't keep any DIR fees. Um, it's it's all a uh, per claim, and we we work through a very uh, transparent medical provider as well called Hero Health. So. They're the medical side and we're the pharmacy side um, for all of our employers. Okay, that's awesome. So um, so right now you guys are only working with that one one um, medical provider or group, just Hero Health, right? Right, right. And and we're, we're open to others as long as they're um, morally aligned, ethically aligned with uh, our goals and our mission. Yeah, no, for sure. And it, I mean, I think that... So in the in the in the normal PBM space, so when we have rebates and such, so in with Mako, you guys are transferring all those um, what's the word I'm looking for benefits or extra cash back to the pharmacies and also the patients, right? Versus in the in the in the way the normal PBMs are structured right now, they're they're taking that and just to make sure that I'm getting that right. Are they taking some of the rebate money back or how? Where's that money going? Sure. So the way we do it at MakeRx and, and Transparent PBMs is it's it's a full pass through of the rebate. Okay. So if you get a 70% rebate on a product, the full 70% goes back to the employer. Um, for for the the normal, the typical PBMs, they have that 70% rebate and they'll pass some of it through, but they'll also have like a rebate fee 
and an admin fee and a fee fee. And then, you know, you actually ended up passing 40%, 20, 45% of the rebate through back to the patient or the, the, the employer. So why don't like employers get together and fight against this? Is it just because PBMs are like way too powerful right now? Uh, well, the biggest reason is they have no idea what's going on. So if, if you're a normal employer, you're not thinking about healthcare. Like your, your focus is on how do I manufacture this thing or how do I have the best restaurant service, not what, what are the cost of my drugs for my employees whenever I have to renew their packages every year. Yeah. And it's, um, I mean, it's because I, I mean, even people in the medical field like me, right? Like I'm in pharmacy. I know people in PBMs. I've generally, I mean, I've called many PBMs in my life and I still don't know how they work. Right. I mean, from when we were in school, you know, for, for us, PBMs were, I mean, for people that don't know pharmacy benefit managers, right? That's what they stand for. That's correct. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> it's, a good, it's good to start with that. Yeah. They, they were created, I mean, you can correct me wrong. They were created to decrease drug prices and increase outcomes, right? By creating a preferred tiered list to direct providers to appropriate therapy, right? That is linked to better outcomes. That's how, that's, we, right. that's when we were growing up, when, growing up, when we were in school, that's how it was, right? And I feel like it's changed a little bit. And, you know, and from all the stuff that we've been reading and like the big news things that came out last year, where it was more like they're directing you to the therapy that's going to give them the highest return of cash. That's right. It is a revenue maximization strategy, not a value-based strategy or even a reduced cost strategy. It is purely revenue maximization. And a lot of that has been from the consolidation of the market. Um, PBMs, you know, there used to be hundreds of PBMs. And over the last 20 years, all those PBMs have been bought up, merged into now uh, big three that control 85, 90% of claims that run through the market. And we've seen this for 100, 120 years. Uh, what can happen whenever companies have that much kind of power? And these are called... Uh, monopolies, oligopolies, technically, because there's multiple of them. But because those three companies have so much power in the market, they can essentially say, uh, we'll, we'll give the brokers who talk to the employers a ton of money to pitch our product. And the brokers will go to the employers and say, the one you used last year was great. They're still the cheapest or they're still the best one. And so because they have that, they work with the brokers, you know, they have the insurance company that they, that actually pay for the claims. They own the pharmacies, uh, they own the specialty pharmacies. Now they're starting to own providers. Uh, it's, it's a huge problem for a transparent system that can benefit from reducing price by competitive, competitive practices. And so that's why the FTC started to look at PBMs as like a quintessential problem as for monopolies. Like this, like I said, this has been. Uh, 100, 120 years ago that they made these laws initially, and we've just stopped implementing and enforcing antitrust laws the last 40, 50 years. Yeah, no. Um, and it's and, and the main reason for this, I mean, the main reasons why we're talking about this is because, you know, everyone talks about access to healthcare and how expensive healthcare is, but everyone keeps pointing at us, the providers, right? Like the clinicians, oh, we're, we're making too much money. We're, we're driving up healthcare prices. We're, we're the reasons for it, right? We're the ones building all these things. Yes. I mean, we make a good living, but there's so many layers to this cake that people just completely forget about, you know what I mean? 
absolutely. There's there's so much complexity, and it's almost complexity on purpose because the more complex it is, the less transparent it is, and the more they can hide pulling out, extracting wealth in those pieces. Yeah, no, for sure. But I mean, I mean, it's just like it's 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 crazy, like what happens in the healthcare world. Um, and you're right. I mean, it's very complex. Like, I mean, we can talk. I mean, I don't know how much you like value-based care or what your thoughts are on value-based care, but like value-based care, I mean, the idea of value-based care is in, in, in entrenched in good, right? They're trying to create, you're getting reimbursed for the value you're providing, right? Good outcomes really to better reimbursement rates. But when you read about value-based care or you ask 10 people what value-based care is, each person will give you a completely different definition of what it is, right? Or, and if you, and I've tried reading <laughs> the value-based care stuff and I like leave like, confused and dizzy like what the what is going on so do you think value-based care moving forward is something that'll help uh with this with this or hurt or is it just not going to even affect it at all in some areas i see value-based care working um there, there are some things where it's just it's going to have to stay fee for service and in other countries they've kept their their prices down even only using fee for service there there are very few uh methods to do value-based care that have, have been shown to be effective. So I, I absolutely think there's there's room for improvement and we could implement many things here in the US, but fee-for-service is the, the way it's worked in all other countries so far. So the problem isn't how much we're using or really our model, it is purely the prices because of the companies are so consolidated and have so much pricing power that they can make the price for the same thing in the US five times of what it is in Germany or wherever. Yeah, I know. Exactly. I mean, and you, you also mentioned that, I mean, I know that you like the public policy, you know, um, just uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, global health. That's not the word I'm looking for. Population health. That's what I'm looking for. Population. I mean, yeah, you have, you have, a, you have a strong interest in that and you talk about it quite a bit. Um, so you, you mentioned there are certain things that we could do in the U S system. In your opinion, what do you think, uh, what are good, what are steps that we could take in our system? Not saying that it's going to happen right now. Obviously there's a lot of things in the middle, but let's say you could flip you could just snap your fingers and be like, okay, this, if this happens today, this will help us out. Sure. Yeah, you're right. I, I have a postdoc fellowship in population health management, and then I spent a couple of years uh, being a clinical pharmacy specialist in population health programs. So um, this is something that I have a little bit of experience with. And the main thing that I think we can do is be able to actually negotiate as the government, the government can actually negotiate the prices for these for a lot of these things, particularly drugs. So Medicare is the only large payer in the world that can't negotiate the cost of drugs that they buy. Every other payer, you know, they, they go line by line here for this for this drug or this NDC even, this is what we're willing to pay and or reimburse to the pharmacy to through the PBM or whatever. Medicare is the only one that is not allowed to do that. And so with the Inflation Reduction Act, this will be the first foray of Medicare into negotiating any drug prices. You know, it, it starts out real low with, with only a few, and then it's supposed to increase over time. But this is why people think it's a, a huge practice or a huge new policy is because this is the first time Medicare has actually been able to negotiate drug prices. Wow. I didn't even know Medicare did not negotiate drug prices. This this is how little I know. <laughs> that's that's wild to me so uh is it is it something that over time it's gonna the list will just get larger and larger and who decides what that list is yeah um so i i've been 
in contact with the person who leads the group, um, the group that's going to be implementing the RA. And so they're hiring people who will be essentially interpreting what does this policy mean, but then also uh, actually implementing and executing it over time. So there is already a set, a set plan for a certain number um, by two years, five years, 10 years. And then after that, um, I, I don't know if they plan to extend or uh, implement a new policy. I don't know what the plan is after they start negotiating that many drugs. I'm sure it will depend on how what the outcomes are from the actual implementation this time around because it's the first time people have done it. Um, the, the group leader that I was talking to, she's like, yeah, we uh, got this policy. We had no idea it was going to be coming. And now we have this new group and I need to hire 200 people immediately. Um, and we need to get up to 900 and a very short period of time as fast as we can. And so, you know, that's, it's, uh, at the beginning, just like with, with any policy, that's a surprise there. Everybody's like running around, have no idea what's going on. And now they are just now starting to get into, okay, how actually are we going to implement this policy? Um, wow. That's kind of, that's kind of crazy that something so big that has huge ramifications kind of came as a quote unquote surprise. Right. Um, yeah, I mean, uh, coming from the world that I come in is oncology, right? So, well, for people that don't know, I my I, my whole career basically has been in oncology uh, since 2013, since I grad well since I graduated residency. But uh, yeah, I mean that world is filled with, in, I mean, sir, I remember talking to a patient in they they, I think it, it was a couple of cycles. They went to a different hospital system that was not ours that kind of build their insurance for everything like hotel rooms and all these other things. And, and they racked up a bill of a million dollars and, yeah. and they're, and they were not able to, and obviously oncology medications are already really expensive and they came to us and they just weren't being covered. And, but what I'm trying to say is there's so many, there's so many stories in oncology where, uh, I mean, I know I've talked to patients where which have had to quit their jobs so they can go into Medicaid and be able to pay for, so imagine this, right? You're literally dying from, from a, from a cancer treatment. And the only way to, for you to survive is to quit your job so you can fall under a certain certain threshold so that you can be covered. And that's, I think that's, those are the kind of things that people don't realize. And it even goes to the family members, right? I've talked to family members that have had to do the same thing because there were dependents and, you know, there's this like massive, crazy tax structure. And I mean, this is a real problem that I think we need, not I think, we really need to get down to the bottom of it. No, absolutely. There, there have been people who have like get have to get divorced, then they have to not live together so they can the the one can qualify for Medicaid, and it is a questionable incentive and a questionable uh, structure for payment uh, whenever you have to do those kind of things to just get life saving medication. Yeah, I mean, and like, and, and you put it perfectly. I mean, this it's it's incentivizing questionable behavior, but that's the only way these people can survive, right? I mean, from our end we don't ever look at it as bad or anything like that because we only, we're yep. only looking at the patient and we're like, Hey, whatever we can do to save you. I mean, there are grants and, you know, for people that don't know, sometimes with oncology medications, there are grants that are put up or companies will have like massive rebates, but you have to know that they exist and yep. your hospital system. So like I worked at a massive hospital that had a whole team doing this, but like smaller clinics don't have that same thing and they don't have the same um, idea that these exist. So like, potentially a person might not be getting first line therapy because they might not know about a rebate program or a grant program and they're on second or third line therapy and their outcomes are obviously not going to be as good as somebody who is able to search for those grants. And that's a system that 
is not fair or at all, right? Right. That's something that in the U.S. we've we've decided that your ability to pay is the way we ration care. In other countries, it's more based on the uh, the care you need, um, who's the most urgent, um, or uh, ac- who has access to care, um, who who can uh, put in their their appointment and then wait the time for it to come up, which we have to do in the U.S. too. There's not an infinite number of primary care slots even for people to immediately book an appointment and then see their doctor later that day. Um, it's it's usually you have to wait a couple of weeks, just like everywhere else. Yeah, for sure. So are you are you excited for the Inflation Reduction Act and or you just want, are you just like kind of like waiting and seeing what what happens from it? Um, I'm I don't say excited. I don't get excited about things in general. Um, what I would say is I will be very interested to see how the negotiation for the drugs will will first be implemented, and then also once they've actually started to negotiate the drugs. Uh, I, I, like I said, I was talking to the group leader, and they're also going to have a section of that team that will be tracking, okay, so now that we've started doing this, how is it affecting drug prices in the market? Is How is it changing launch prices? How is it changing the uh, drug increases? Because, you know, there, anything that's over the price or the, the cost of inflation is uh, a rebate back to Medicare. So that's a lot of the stuff that I'm interested in is once we have this and it start going, what is that data saying on the the back end now that we've started to get some results through? Uh, how is the market reacting to this, and what are new drugs coming out at? Yeah, no, and I think that's a good segue into. Um, so Amazon recently there was news that they're they're starting a I think it's a five dollar um, prescription drug plan. Walmart sure. has had this for, I mean, I, since I can remember, right? And other companies kind of followed suit with Walmart because Walmart was. Um, killing their killing their competition with these specific drugs, but and then you know then you have like Cost Plus, which is like the big one that Mark Cuban is, but you know other pharmacies have existed before that, like Blueberry. Um, it's how 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 are these pharmacies or how are they able to to create programs like this? If that question makes sense, like these five dollar prescription drug plans and you know like Blueberry and Cost Plus, like how are they able to? do this i mean i guess that's yeah, how are they able to have a business yeah like how are low they cost to... model exactly yeah. yeah absolutely uh the reason is because despite what your copays or what your pbm might tell you these generics are extremely low cost so we're talking pennies or less per pill and so with say rx pass the the amazon for five dollars they could have patients get multiple medications uh, they could have up to 10 probably and still be making money on that extra $5 bonus. And not only that, I mean, a lot of their benefit is also their Amazon prime membership skews pretty young. And so if they get some more older people that need more medications to be included in that, then they're more likely to grow their, their membership for Amazon prime. So that's a, a different piece that works out for Amazon for Mark Cuban and, and uh, blueberry even. These these drugs are just so low cost that they can say, okay, we'll give you this essentially cost plus price, which is what we at the transparent transparent PBM at, at Mako. Um, that's what we use is a it's called NADAC National Average Drug Acquisition Cost, and that is what the average cost for a pharmacy to buy that drug is. And using that per pill, that ingredient unit ingredient cost, they can say, okay, for thirty pills, this drug costs 30 cents 
And so 30 cents plus the $5 for shipping it, plus their 15% um, that they get to keep as their margin that uh, Mark Cuban does, that allows them to be able to ship these products anywhere for less than $5 for five to $10. And anybody, people can get their medications um, for these extremely cheap prices, even without insurance. So why doesn't, why don't more pharmacies do this? Uh, so by doing this, you are essentially uh, turning away insurance. Um, there, there is one pharmacy that are uh, technically two pharmacies that he has a, a normal pharmacy. And then next door, he has a cash only pharmacy. Oh. And so he can check in the normal pharmacy. Okay. Your copay is actually going to be $15, but let's run it over at the freedom pharmacy is what it's called. The uh, pharmacy next door, freedom pharmacy, and we'll see how much it costs here. And Oh, it's only six fifty. So if you want to not use your insurance, we can save you not eight and a half dollars on your your medication and we can go just do cash only because generics are so cheap and copays aren't necessarily based on the cost of the drug they're based on like the tier the drug sits on so is the reason then this might sound like a really stupid question but why does he have to separate the pharmacies into completely different things so it it, it likely has to do with uh the ppm contracts because you're not allowed mm -hmm. to just give cash prices that are lower than your usual and customary uh, so for this no, for a normal pharmacy, whenever you're negotiating your contract with a PBM, you have this what's called a usual and customary price. This is my my normal price, my cash price, <laughs> and that is the price that is used to negotiate from. And so you want that price to be pretty high, or at least not so low that uh, a say a copay for a for a drug would be would be below that, um, because if if uh, the, the PBM is only going to, going to use whatever is lower, the usual customary or whatever the, the, the MAC price for the drug is, uh, uh, maximal allowable cost. And so a lot of the time, it's just better for the pharmacy to have a higher usual and customary and so a higher cash price, but they're not allowed to lower that because they're essentially breaking their contract with the PBM. So he just has his one pharmacy and he has next door his cash only freedom pharmacy and that allows him to get around that. That's that's wild. Wow. Um, it's crazy he has to do that that uh, trickery to do that, but uh, it's a good business. Yeah, I mean, I mean, it's it's bringing value to the community, right? I mean, I think that's one thing that's lost in healthcare today is that community aspect of healthcare. I mean, I was I've had this conversation a couple of times recently. Is you know, with all these uh, mergers and acquisitions and stuff, and you don't have that, you don't have people in the community deciding what the healthcare of that community is. It's people from you know, hundreds and thousands of miles away telling them, hey, this is how you need to treat your people. And because, you know, they're just looking at spreadsheets and, you know. Absolutely. And it's not that, That's something that uh, that Mako, Mako does is uh, we only work with independent pharmacies. So we have just about every independent pharmacy in our network in the U.S., um, like 16 of the 20,000. Um, but only independent pharmacies are in network with us. So uh, we've really focused on for new programs, only using independent pharmacies and driving our patients uh, lower copays, uh, way lower copays, often $0 copays if they pick up drugs from our independent pharmacies. That's awesome. So if you're an independent pharmacy, how do you get a hold of Mako? So we have, uh, if you just search uh, makorx.com, um, you can find us and you can choose to be a pharmacy. You can see like find your pharmacy and then there's a, a thing on there where you can asked to add your pharmacy um, and on there's also a phone number you can call on and, and you'll uh, within likely two rings you'll get a, an answer from someone that's a real person and they'll get you added to our network awesome 
And um, is there any upfront cost for these pharmacies? No, no. Uh, you know, we've we've got questions about uh, we've had people sign contracts and they're like, oh, so here's the reimbursement rate I'm going to be getting. Uh, why is it more than what I'm getting in other places? Like normally when you sign a contract to be in network, normally the, what you're, you're accepting lower reimbursements to do that. And some of them get thrown off whenever the reimbursement's actually higher because it's cost plus. So this is, I mean, this sounds too good to be true, right? Is that probably what kind of what you're getting? Like people that come to you like, this doesn't make sense. This is, you're not trying to screw us over, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, a lot of the pharmacies, the, the patients are just like, wow, that's amazing. Um, very few of them have been like, how are you even doing this? How is it legal? It's usually <laughs> the pharmacies that are that are more uh, wondering how we're able to do this and, and be uh, still a PBM um, without, uh, you know, them getting angry with us for having the, the word PBM tied to us. Yeah, no, that's amazing. Um, so um one other thing I want to highlight, and actually I learned about them from you, um, Blueberry Pharmacy, uh, you know, because Cost Plus came out and then everyone was talking about this. Oh, my God, Mark, you've been saving pharmacy. But there are other people before this and Blueberry is one of them. Do you want to share a little bit about them? Let's give them some love. Uh, <laughs> uh, for <laughs> yeah, the yeah. Listeners. yeah, yeah. Blueberry Pharmacy, uh, it's Pennsylvania, I'm pretty sure, um, and is owned by Kyle Bridgewater. Uh, he essentially started doing this model, this Cost Plus model well before anyone that I'm aware of. And uh, from how I understand it, he he spoke with the, who is now the COO of Mark Cuban's pharmacy and essentially told him about, here's here's this model, you use NADAC and you can make it more scalable. And that's how Mark Cuban's pharmacy has really taken off because they've been able to use this and scale this uh, the specific cost plus model. And, you know, now they, they have the, the name of Mark Cuban behind them. Plus they utilize TruePill to do all their fulfillment. So te I mean, technically Mark Cuban's pharmacy is just like an online pharmacy, yeah. uh, that, uh, almost like a, almost like a PBM where they just like, they just manage the, the, the transactions and then the fulfillment's all done by a real pharmacy TruePill. Um, but anyways, uh, Blueberry Pharmacy, they've been doing this cost plus and they are extremely transparent. Um, I've, I've seen Kyle post many things where it's like, here's the cost of the medication. We'll say it's uh, 50 cents. And then here's the cost of the bottle. Here's the cost of the sticker. Here's the cost of the electricity. Here's the cost of the pharmacy and the staff, like the pharmacist and the staff. And so that's how we get to equal your $6 and 50 cents a medication cost. So it's completely transparent. Here's how my, all my expenses break down. And that's why I need the, you to pay the 650 instead of, Fifteen dollars if you had insurance. Yeah, wow. Yeah, wow. That's amazing. Um, and yeah, and and I honestly didn't know um, this was happening. And, and it was you that told me. He's like, hey, check these people out. And because I reached out to you, I think when that came out, or you posted something, and then you had mentioned them. Like, oh, that's all. And I looked into them, and it was pretty amazing what uh, they're doing. Um, but and so you mentioned you're a consultant. So what kind of um, clients are you? Are like, if anyone wanted to reach out to you, like, what kind of uh, clients are you looking for or or are the ones that you help them or i guess what clients are you looking for like what who, who are the kind of people that should reach out to you sure sure uh, i i mainly work with uh people on pbms and healthcare startup stuff i've also done some strategy consulting like one-off calls um uh mostly with investors so i've had people that have called about like okay so this ftc thing where they're looking into pbms how risky is it for me to be investing in optum right now or UHG um, because who knows where this will be going, but they're going to start 
uh, tearing people up, tearing the companies apart and <laughs> therefore, you know, messing with the revenue and their stocks are going to go down and all these things. And uh, one, that's a little bit overblown. Likely whenever the FTC finds these things, they'll be like, okay, one business practice at a time, uh, no spread pricing. And then there'll be no rebates. And then they'll, they'll do like one thing at a time. And then at the very end, uh, maybe they'll be like, okay, you guys need to split up because you have way too much consolidated power here in this one company. Um, so anyway, that's that's what I talk, I've talked to uh, some investors about those kind of things. Um, but for people listening to this, more likely, I also do some strategy consulting and advising um, for uh, start healthcare startups, um, mainly through the VC firm Redesign Health. Um, so if anybody has uh, interest in strategy consulting, um, particularly from someone who knows from the front end to the back end, I've I've done everything from sales to operations to anything. Yeah, I mean, I think after hearing this, I don't know why no one, I don't know why people wouldn't reach out to you because um, you're blowing my mind and I'm in the space. So like, uh, you, I mean, you have a lot of knowledge and um, you obviously know what you're talking about. So uh, definitely reach out to him uh, because you're not going to regret it. Uh, so um, how did you get into the consult consulting space? Like, you know, um, we as pharmacists, right? Um, that's one thing, you know, I've kind of moved away from the clinical world you've kind of moved away from the clinical world as well. Like there's a lot of talk about burnout, retail pharmacy being, you know, a lot of pharmacists being burnt out. Like what brought you into consulting? Cause it's not something that everyone just thinks about and you're, and you've been very uh, successful as well. Sure. Sure. Uh, the way it came about, I mean, it's never for a lot of consultants, it's not usually on purpose. Um, so <laughs> what I started doing early on was, making a practice of reaching out to people that I thought were interesting and then continually following up with them every few months. And I have a reminder in my to-do list to do this every day to, you know, you go back to the bottom of your LinkedIn messages or the bottom of your texts, the bottom of your Facebook messages, whatever you use and follow up with people. And, you know, you have the whole previous message context to make sure you're not just like completely forgetting what you were talking about. And from doing that, I not only was able to, Get, make, essentially make my own fellowship initially. My postdoc fellowship wasn't a thing until I helped create it. And then uh, now it's been, it's been going on for a few years. Um, but since then, uh, it's mainly been to outreach to people and just follow up with them and that are people that are doing interesting things. And that has been where the majority of my consulting clients has come from. I just uh, talk to them, I follow up with them consistently. And then um, like with, with Mako, um, the, the CEO, co-founder was just like, Bryce, I think I need someone that has your skills right now. Um, can we meet to talk? And coincidentally, he was 10 minutes from where my house was at the time and that their, their location, their, their base location. And so I met him in person and we walked outside and talked about the kind of skills I have and the problems he was having. And that's essentially how I started consulting was I met with people and they needed some help and uh, didn't always have the, the need or money for doing full time. So that's where the consulting 1099 comes in beneficial. Yeah, and I and that's and you're right. Um, I kind of got into consulting the same way. Like I didn't know I was trying to find different things, and I just literally just reached out to people and tried to connect with them. And same situation, like hey, you know, I wasn't really looking for anything, but I was just they would come to me and be like, hey, uh, it's interesting your background. Would love to work with you, and they would just kind of keep answering asking questions, and I'd keep answering them. And then eventually they'd be like, Hey, you know, maybe we should have bring you on. And you're right, man. It's, it's kind of a weird world. Um, but it's, it's fun. I like it. And you get to work with a lot of different clients and, 
you really get to, I mean, I like the startup side and you really get to like be involved in, I don't know, startups are interesting. I mean, you can probably give your own thing. I like startups. You have like a lot of people kind of pulling at the same end of the rope and everyone is, I think delusional is not, I'm not saying it in a negative way, but you have to be kind of delusional because you can't let doubt slip into your mind, right? You have to be like, yes, we are going to make this happen. Absolutely. That's, that's funny. Cause I've, I've talked to the CEO and uh, a lot of, so we, we have like a fundamental every week that we discuss. And one of them is thinking in probabilities. And an example that I've given whenever that fundamental comes up is the CEO and I were talking about uh, the likelihood that this client would come on or this customer would choose our product and these kind of things. And he was usually on the 60 to 80% range and me hearing the exact same information, having the exact same uh, background of knowledge on the company, I'm like, this sounds a lot more like a 20, 30% range. And uh, all of those actually didn't work out. So the ones that I had in the 20, 30% range. So I'm wondering, maybe he's just made to be too optimistic. Yeah, I mean, I had, I mean, I had a startup before and you, you're kind of, I mean, the David Wirtz versus Goliath thing is real, right? Like you have to be very, very like i mean it can hurt or i mean it, there's like a fine line right you have to be fluid enough to kind of go with the flow and also you have to be really if you don't really believe in your idea you're not going to you're not going to succeed right i mean there's pivoting that happens i think somebody told me i was talking to a vc the other day and he said 70% of startups will pivot after vc funded right but uh but they also say that when you get in front of vcs you shouldn't get up there and start changing your idea for them right just to make it look better because then they're like well this guy is do they even know what they're doing so it's like this weird (laughs) world it's like this weird world in startup where you're supposed to be flexible but also not flexible at the same time and you have to like kind of find this weird middle ground absolutely absolutely Uh, a lot of a lot of the people don't even know who they're selling to they're like we just have this really great idea and someone's gonna want to buy it like pay for it sometime like uh, the patient or or a provider or someone just because it's so good and, you know, that's kind of an important thing if you're going to be pitching to, to VC or to anyone about the value of your company, who's actually paying you money to do it. Yeah, no, for sure. But um, the other thing I want to kind of get into, and this has really nothing to do with healthcare or anything like that, but um, you are kind of pseudo retired. Not, I mean, you, you kind of work because you like what you're doing and you're trying to do good things, which is very commendable. But um you know, do you want kind of mind telling people that story of how you kind of got to this point of financial independence? Sure, sure. I will say that the reason I've done this is so I can be extra risky in my healthcare career. Um, the way I did it was all through real estate and specifically through what's called house hacking. So people look up that term, they can find out about it, but essentially it's where you buy a primary residence and you live in it, you can rent out extra space in it. Um, right, same, like right now I have uh, tenant roommates. I have a detached garage that I rent out to traveling nurses or executives that happen to me uh, nearby need to go downtown. And I've done this multiple years in a row where I have to live there for 12 months because that's the requirement for my primary residence mortgage. And then I wait 12 months, I live there with the roommates or whatever, and I move and I keep the old house. And so on the old house, I can rent it fully. I have a full rental property and I had to put zero to 5% down to buy that house 
instead of for normal investor properties, you have to put down 20 or 25%. So this allows me to have rental properties uh, now for 0% down because there are special pharmacist home loans that uh, are also applied to physicians and sometimes nurses and other, other healthcare providers. Um, but now 0% down for pharmacists and you can still get the same interest rates and the same benefits as a primary residence mortgage. And um, yeah, when you, when you talked to me about this, I didn't know this existed. Um, I'm still in the house that when we talked about this, but uh, yeah, but uh, yeah, man, it's uh, it's a it's a wild world, and um, it's it's really interesting. And so, how does your how does your wife deal with it? Like, is she does she like it? Did, were you doing this before you got married or after you got married? This is funny. Um, my wife lived with, moved to North Carolina and lived with me here in an apartment for one year, and then she started her PhD in Texas, uh, many states and miles away. Now, uh, right after that, I, I stayed there in that apartment for another nine or 10 months, and then I bought my first house. So since then, I've been moving every year, and she will theoretically be done in August. So this that'll be the first time she'll be moving back in and house hacking with me. But she is also very low maintenance and has, has roommates and is fine with roommates. So I don't imagine we'll stop doing this unless uh, kids or so, like the, the place is too small. I actually, I can't, I can't imagine a time when I wouldn't be doing it in some form. Like, like I said, even if it's, we, we are in the main house and then we have a detached garage that I convert to a guest house and then rent out the guest house, or we move to the guest house and rent out the main house, something. Um, I, I don't see why I wouldn't do that because it just really saves a ton on your living expenses. Because you know, if the mortgage is two thousand dollars and you have three roommates each paying you seven hundred dollars, I'm making a hundred dollars to live here. And not assuming uh, cost of maintenance of the house, but still, uh, it's it really reduces your your personal living expenses and makes it a lot easier to be financially independent when your housing cost is close to zero. Yeah, no, for sure. Um... I'll have to look into it. I don't know how much my wife would enjoy it. So that's that's kind of one of the reasons why I am I have not jumped into the house hacking world. But you, I mean, you gotta pitch the you gotta pitch the positive side first. You gotta <laughs> it'll be like like or if she's really into uh being uh, interior design or really uh, artsy and creative, which I I don't know your wife, maybe she is, um you could have that detached garage and it'd be on Airbnb and she gets to decorate however she wants, um, and she could be the one that manages it. Um those are things that you could you could pitch to her as well. And Airbnb makes a lot more money than uh, long-term rentals like what I do. Really? Yeah, no, I think, I think the key is the detached garage. Maybe the next house will have a detached garage. <laughs> That's <laughs> right. You, you got to keep an eye for those. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. A lot of people don't like them. So, I mean, I don't actually mind detached garage, but um, no, I, I mean, every time I talk to you, man, I always learn so much. Um, you're always very insightful. I love your mission, uh, your values. Um, they really strike a chord with me. And, you know, I, a lot of us talk about it, but you're actually doing it. And that's, uh, to me is amazing. Uh, even me, like I talk a lot about it, but am I really doing anything? Not much. I mean, I, I guess, you know, I mean, I'll, I'll be honest, right? I mean, I will be honest and I'm trying. It's, it's, it's not always about, are you doing lots of things? It is, are you consistently doing small things over time? And so over time, those really compound to, to be more impactful things. So, you know, it's more about, are you consistently showing up? And I would say anyone could argue you, you are definitely consistently showing up. <laughs> well, thank you for the kind words. Man. Um, no, I'd, um, 
I mean, I, I wish you nothing but the best. You, you know, you, 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 you showed, you say that you have an interest in policy and stuff. And honestly, we need people like you, um, taking care of the policies like this, because, um, you are one of those people that are actually legitimately looking out for the patients, the providers, and the real things that we need to be looking out for. And we need more people like you, uh, doing these things rather than, um, you know, things getting earmarked here and there and like other things coming in. So I really appreciate what you're doing and man, keep doing it, man. I am going to, I will support you any way I can moving forward. I mean, I had, I, I try to, but, um, I'm going to keep doing it because people like you need to be heard. Um, and it's really important to have people like you like you know, around. I appreciate it. I will continue to show up and I have a, you know, 70, 70 year longer, uh, year career that I still have planning going forward. So yeah, if I man. just keep show, showing up long enough, hopefully I can make some real impact. Yeah, as long as you're getting those eight hours of sleep, man. I, I'm still trying. That's right. I'm still really trying to get eight hours of sleep. I don't know sleep why. Sleep is the foundation. <laughs> you cannot be missing out on the sleep. I, I, for some reason, cannot get past seven hours. I, my body will just wake up regardless of what time it is. It just doesn't want to go past seven hours. I don't know why it is. I will, I've tried many times. It is the, like, you're going to be waking up around the same time. It's the going to sleep part. That's hard. You got to slowly walk back the going to sleep time. And that's, that's how I do it. And, but I've also been going to sleep and waking up at like the same time for the last, uh, 15 years. So it's, it's, uh, more ingrained in me. Like my body knows, okay, it's time to sleep and it knows when it's time to wake up. Yeah, I know for sure. Yeah. I'm trying, I'm trying. I really am. Um, but uh, if anyone's interested in getting a hold of you, uh, what is the best place for them to reach out to you? Probably LinkedIn. I, I'm basically anything you contact me, it all goes to my phone, so I can I can do all those. But if you look up Bryce Platt on LinkedIn, that's the best way that you could probably find me quickly. Sounds good, and I'll have all those in the show notes below. But uh, one last question for you: like, if you had any advice to give to yourself uh, when you graduated or when you yet just started, what would you, knowing what you know now, what would you have told yourself? So whenever I graduated. I actually didn't know what I was going to be doing. Uh, I said I have this postdoc fellowship, but it wasn't a for sure thing at the time. It was just like a, a real loose discussion in the air. And so I was about as anxious as I've ever been in my life because, you know, you're you're working on uh, passing the NAPLEX and the MPJE as well as trying to figure out what am I going to do after that. And I didn't know what that was going to be. So I was much more anxious than any other time in my life. And that's because I really didn't know what was going to be going on. So I would tell myself, it's going to work out. Uh, I could be specific. If I could be specific, I'd be like, this this specific fellowship is going to work out and it'll go well after that. Um, but the biggest part is it's going to be fine, even if it takes longer than you think it's going to take. Um, it wasn't until two weeks after graduation that I heard that the fellowship was going to work out. So it takes time. Just breathe and let it happen. I think that's great advice. Um, patience and persistence are two things that you see a lot of successful people have. Um, and, and I think that's one of the biggest things. I mean, that was, that I learned, I'm not a very patient person, but I've had to be, uh, <laughs> mainly because life, uh, humbles you very quickly. Yeah, life, life forces <laughs> you to be patient. That's right. Yeah, for sure. But Bryce, thank you so much for your time. This was an amazing conversation. I know people will enjoy it. I know I did. But uh, thank you for everything. And yeah, man, thanks a lot. Thanks for having me on here.